0: Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. From fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels and more, we're here to help you find something great to read.
1: The bed he had died in was the double he had shared for years with Carla she laid the tablecloth out on her mother's half so that its hem touched her father's arm, hip, and leg. Then, swallowing hard, her head was pounding worse than ever, she prepared to roll her father onto his shroud. Peter Goldsmith was wearing his striped pajamas, and that struck her as jarringly frivolous, but they would have to do. She could not even entertain the thought of first undressing and then dressing him again. Stealing herself, she grasped his left arm. It was as hard and unyielding as a piece of furniture, and pushed, rolling him over. As she did so, A hideous, long, burping sound escaped him, a belch that seemed to go on and on, rasping in his throat as if a locust had crawled down there and had now come to life in the dark channel, calling and calling. She screeched, stumbling away, and knocking over the bed table, his combs, his brushes, the alarm clock, a little pile of change, and some tie clips and cufflinks all jingled and fell to the floor. Now there was a smell, a corrupted, gassy smell, and the last of the protective fog which had wrapped her dissipated and she knew the truth. She fell to her knees and wrapped her arms around her head and wailed. She was not burying some life-size doll, it was her father she was burying. And the last of his humanity, the very last, was the juicy, gassy smell that now hung on the air, and it would be gone soon enough. Hello Books and Nachos listeners, I'm Arnie, your host for this episode, continuing my review of Stephen King's 1978 novel The Stand. Now, as I mentioned in part one of this podcast, I'm simultaneously reviewing the 1980 paperback version and the 1990 complete and uncut release. In the first part of this podcast series, which you can hear at booksandnachos.com, I discussed the circumstances that led to King writing this novel. I talked about his inspiration, as well as how The Stand compares to the other novels he had in print at this time. And this isn't really going to be a standalone podcast here. I'm going to talk as if you have heard part one, so if you haven't listened to that, head to booksandnachos.com or iTunes, you can download that one. And now for the second part in this six-part series, I'm going to start looking at the plot of The Stand and the characters King created for this novel. The book starts off with chapter one at a gas station in Arnett, Texas, where six men are hanging out, shooting the breeze, drinking Pabst Blue Ribbon beer, and complaining about the economy. And it's here that we meet Stuart Redmond, the character who will open and close this novel, at least in the original two printings. Stu is a classic King protagonist. He's quite simply a good guy in the classical sense. Throughout the novel, Stu constantly has the right impulses and says the right things. King writes Stu is, quote, just another good old boy in a dying Texas town, end quote. More, he's also described as, quote, old time tough, end quote. His backstory, told in the first five pages, sets him up to be a George Bailey-like character in this novel. Now 30 years old, Stu was a former high school football player who was left to care for his little brother when their mother died. This responsibility forced Stu to turn down an academic scholarship and, instead, take a job at a calculator plant. His brother went off to college and ended up a systems analyst for IBM, while Stu was still in Texas, still working at the calculator plant. Stu got married for 18 months, but he's now a widower, his wife having died of cancer. This familiar character type, easily envisioned as Jimmy Stewart's classic good guy, quickly gains reader empathy. More, Stu isn't mouthy. He's called in prose, quote, "...perhaps the quietest man in Arnett," end quote. Although I have to say that taciturn style doesn't really come through in this book. Stu seems to talk just about as well as anybody. Surely the quietest character in this book is Nick, but we'll talk about him in a little bit. Now, I knew Stu was the main hero of this story when I first read it, thanks to the miniseries. But reading the book this time, I think that might have been a shock to some readers. Stu is but one of six men at the gas station, and it is one of the scenes where he's actually not that talkative. For anyone completely unfamiliar with The Stand, it might be more difficult to determine which characters are the ones that you should pay most attention to. It's rather exciting, in fact, that we're introduced to nine characters in the first chapter, three in the second, and so on, but many of these characters are just set up to die. This high percentage of carnage would leave unspoiled readers wondering who will be the next character to succumb to the flu. And King's writing craft is finally honed by this point, sharpened through three published novels, several more unpublished ones, and, I think most important at this stage, King's short story writing. In The Stand, King uses the techniques I saw again and again in the Night Shift stories to quickly establish characters and situations. Indeed, this first book of The Stand starts off feeling more like a series of short stories taking place in a shared universe rather than an actual novel. And, to that end, I really do think the Night Shift installment, Night Surf, could be taking place in this book as well, just slightly out of sight of the characters we follow. It almost could play like a cutscene. That said, in this reading, I must say I'm a bit unmoved by the character of Stu Redmond. He's too good, too down-home wholesome. He's too cool under pressure, too willing and able to always make the right choice and be a moral center. That's something the book needs, but it makes our primary protagonist best summed up as bland, white, good guy and romantic leading man. Now this book is about staunch good and staunch evil. It wants extremes in here, and maybe Stu is intended to be an extreme example of good, hence why he's our primary hero. But I don't necessarily think that's the case, because King did a very similar portrayal with Ben Mears in Salem's Lot. And then in future novels that I can think of, there are countless other protagonists that fit this bland good guy mold. There's just very little conflict in Stu throughout the book, and it's the circumstances surrounding him that make him interesting. Stu himself is really kind of dull. Even George Bailey had a character flaw, that crisis of confidence, the wishing he was never born. Stu never even has that much. Going larger, at a macro level, I'm not sure if King has an intent behind leaving several of his leading men so bland, but it's a common thread especially in the first half of his career. Having these blank slate all-American men may allow a male readership to better identify with the protagonist. It may be an intentionally populist writing technique. That said, I prefer interesting characters in extreme circumstances. And Stu's in extreme circumstances, but he never qualifies as interesting. Which isn't to say he comes off as generic. King does give a lot of backstory to this character. But sometimes these stories are inconsistent. For example, Stu is awfully well-read for a factory worker with only a high school diploma. He's quite clearly not a poorly written character, there's just nothing here that makes his personality of great interest. But here in this first chapter, or as I'll call it, the first short story, Stu's peaceful existence is literally smashed by an oncoming plague. An army soldier named Charles De Campion, along with his dead wife and daughter, drive their Chevy right into the gas pumps. Stu is the only one with the peace of mind to turn off the pumps and prevent an explosion, already setting him up to be a hero, a savior. It turns out Campion is a deserter from an army base where the government was researching biological weapons. An accident at the base released a superflu, codenamed Project Blue. Campion's job was to close the gate and keep the disease contained, but instead he fled with his wife and daughter, unaware that he'd already been infected by the deadly virus. The Campions drove from California to Texas and spread the disease everywhere they stopped. In the uncut version of the novel, this is all set up in another short story, put as the book's prologue. But I actually prefer the abridged opening, where we start with everyday peaceful Texan life. The real world that we live in, that King wants us to relate to. And then, that normality is interrupted by Campion's car crash. His family dead from the flu, and Campion himself on the verge of death. King's description of the Campion's demise is not pleasant. Still less than ten pages into the book, King writes, quote, Vic and Stu looked into the car for some time, looked at each other, then looked back in. On the passenger side was a young woman, her shift dress hiked up high on her thighs. Leaning against her was a boy or a girl, about three years old. They were both dead. Their necks had swelled up like inner tubes, and the flesh there was a purple-black color, like a bruise. The flesh was puffed up under their eyes, too. They looked, Vic later said, like those baseball players who put lamp black under their eyes to cut the glare. Their eyes bulged sightlessly. The woman was holding the child's hand. Thick mucus had run from their noses and was now clotted there. Flies buzzed around them, lighting in the mucus, crawling in and out of their open mouths. End quote. This is Stu's, and our, introduction to the superflu that will become known as Captain Trips. But it would be a while before the full effect of the disease is felt. Because in Chapter 2, we jump from Texas to Maine to our second short story, and our second main character, Francis Goldsmith. It's in this method that King introduces the main characters. He had said he originally wanted the story to be told like a pyramid. In Chapter 1, we'd meet Fran. Then Fran would meet Stu in Chapter 2, and each subsequent chapter, we'd meet a new main character. In writing, though, King realized that was untenable, so instead, he chose what he describes as a diamond-shaped story, where we start with a small number of main characters introduced one at a time, and then those characters meet others until finally they come together. Then, as the story nears its end, the tertiary and secondary characters start to fall away until we're back to just a few main actors again. It's actually a very comfortable way to be pulled into the stand. With Campion's dead family, King has done the literary equivalent of putting storm clouds on the horizon. We know something bad is coming, but for the first few chapters of the book, Captain Trips isn't the focus. It's the people. Only in Stu's plot is the superflu of primary concern, and that's every third chapter or so. In between, King is introducing us to some main characters, some good, some evil, and some that could go either way. Each character is shown in their daily life and has an individual struggle. No one is just sitting around waiting for the world to end. With the exception of Stu, all the characters are already struggling with some challenges in each of their individual lives. These are the plots of their own unique short stories, and they allow us to see these characters before the world crumbles. And yes, Fran is the second of these characters. Now, if Stu is the archetypal King-leading man, Fran certainly fits the mold of King's leading women from this era. First, Fran is a resident of Agunquit, Maine, King's method of including his home state in this novel. And also, like Susan in Salem's Lot and Wendy in The Shining, Fran is a strong-willed woman. Especially in this first book, we get to see Fran as someone willing to stand up for herself and not be told what to do, characteristics we witness when we discover that Fran is pregnant. This is problematic, as she's an unmarried 21-year-old college student still relying on her parents. Our introduction to Fran is her telling the father, then breaking up with him because he's, in her mind, weak. His weakness is offset by Fran's strength, shown in that she doesn't need to cling to a man for support, or anyone else, as her parents won't help with the new child either. In Fran, we see another familiar King character trope, the sibling survivor. Fran was four years old when her 13-year-old brother Freddy was killed by a drunk driver. The much younger Fran had always been her father's favorite child, but Freddy was her mother's favorite. When Freddie died, Fran's mother turned into a hard and bitter woman, especially mean towards her daughter and anything she viewed as unladylike behavior. In the extended edition, we see far more of this mother-daughter strife, which also reminds me greatly of Susan and her mother in Salem's Lot. Yet again, we see King's short story ability shine. Fran's backstory is spread throughout several chapters, but she's quickly established as another good, likable, all-American hero. What King writes could be the plot of any chick-lit drama tale, especially in the uncut version where Fran's family gets additional pages. King is writing a family drama story of a college girl who finds herself unexpectedly preggers. It's part of the tremendous storytelling of this novel that he starts Fran off in such a mundane way, and then her story is literally infected by another story, the story of Captain Trips. Unfortunately, Fran's part in that larger story is ultimately unfulfilling. She's obviously set up to be a main character in these opening chapters. Her strength and independence would be useful traits in a post-apocalyptic world. And Fran is also obviously set up from her first introduction to be a romantic lead. She's described as being exceptionally attractive. Tall with chestnut hair that fell halfway down her back. King writes, quote, good figure. Long legs that got appreciative glances. Prime stuff was the correct frat house term, she believed. Looky, looky, looky. Here comes Nookie. End quote. But Fran's pregnancy ultimately relegates her to the role of broodmare. For books 1 and 2, she turns out primarily to be a sexy woman that men fight over. Then in book 3, Fran's only purpose is to have a baby, the first baby that will be born after the flu, to see if it will survive. All of Fran's fortitude, toughness, and nerve are washed away as she's off-screen for the book's whole climax. So I don't much care to read about Stu, and I like Fran, but she's ultimately a wasted character. So, given that I'm unimpressed with two of our leading characters it may start to seem like I don't enjoy The Stand. But just because the two top characters are unfulfilling, well, this book has hundreds of others that I find much more interesting, including the third hero to whom we're introduced, Larry Underwood, a rock and roll star and self-centered SOB. Larry left his home in New York to go to LA and be a musician, and through luck, he has a hit song called Baby Can You Dig Your Man. Now, an aside about this song, I'm sure King had a tune in his mind when he wrote these lyrics. He fancies himself a poor musician. but. God, I have no idea how the song would be a hit with the chorus. Quote, I know I didn't say I was coming down. I know you didn't know I was here in town. But bay yay yaybie, you can tell me if anyone can. Baby, can you dig your man? He's a righteous man. Tell me, baby, can you dig your man? End quote. One of the things I was looking forward most to revisiting the ABC miniseries was to figure out how somebody put a tune to this. But what they did for that is worse than even my best imagining. But yet, somehow, these lyrics and whatever song King imagined put Larry atop the charts. Instantly, he's beset by friends and hangers-on, and this is where we meet Larry in his own short story. Not only has he spent every advance given to him by the music studio, but he's over $10,000 in debt with money spent on cars, cocaine, and parties. He's driven back home to New York to dodge his dealers and everyone else to whom he owes money. In Larry's first introduction, he's sitting outside his mother's New York apartment and recalls being told the hard facts by a former bandmate. And at that point, Larry can hardly walk half a mile down the beach without his legs cramping. And when he's in trouble, he just runs to New York to find safety and maybe another girl to bed. Given how much walking Larry's going to have to do before this novel's over, it's a physical representation of a character that will be undergoing change. But Larry is supposed to be a character that we don't know if he's good or evil. King gives us insights into Larry's character in not so subtle ways. During the talking to on the beach, Larry's told, quote, There's a hard streak in you. There's something in you that's like biting on tinfoil. Whatever it takes to make success, you've got it. End quote. He's another strong character, but he's greedy and selfish. He's a character who always takes the easy way. And King did that so that we would think he could fall on either the side of good or evil. Even Larry's own mother thinks, quote, There was something hard in Larry. End quote. End quote. He was the only one allowed inside his heart. End quote. But there is a catch. There's always that light with Larry. King also wrote his mother thinking, quote, She also thought there was good in Larry. Great good. It was there, but this late on, it would take a catastrophe to bring it out. End quote. Again, I'm a bit biased as I'd seen half of the Stand miniseries before I started reading, but this time through, I spent a lot of time analyzing Larry as a character, and I discovered he's honestly my favorite character in this novel. And that's because, unlike Goody Goody, Fran, and Stu, Larry has struggles. King has written rich characters in the stand, all of whom feel distinct, most of whom are fleshed out. But in this book, only two characters feel real, and Larry's the realist there is. Which is a bit amusing, given that as a rock star, he may be the least relatable character in the novel. But I get Larry. He's a survivalist. He runs from trouble he can't talk or buy his way out of, and with the coming plague, that's an instinct that seems pretty logical. If everyone around you is dying, Machiavellian attitudes may be the best key. But even more, Larry is trying to be a good guy. In New York, he has a one-night stand with an oral hygienist, and her proclamation to Larry as he leaves her in the morning is, You ain't no nice guy! And despite being grammatically incorrect and something Larry knows, this indictment from this oral hygienist sticks with Larry throughout the novel. He spends the rest of this book trying to be good. I personally think more people can relate to a struggle of trying to do the right thing than relate to characters to whom it just comes natural to always be the hero. Also relatable, Larry wants to survive. He wants to take care of himself, yet he sometimes feels guilty for putting himself first so often. It's a tricky balance Larry must achieve. I think these are struggles everyone can see in portions of their own lives. Maybe this character would be even better if he tried to be good and failed if he spent the novel trying to be a nice guy and ended up joining Flag's team. That would have been a major shock, and yeah, it still would have been true to character. But yet the way King writes about Larry and shows us how everyone else thinks of Larry, I know he is a nice guy, despite what the oral hygienist says. When the book came out, King said he'd like to see Springsteen himself cast as Larry in the movie of The Stand, and no one cast the boss as a bad guy betrayer. No, the same way Stu is a good old Texas boy... Larry is clearly on the side of good. He's just the classic American rock and roll star. But despite that, I just love his nuances. As the world crumbles, Larry not only tries to improve himself, tries to be that nice guy, but he also chooses to totally distance himself from his Top 40 hit, a song everybody knows is one of the last hit songs in America. He still loves music, but he's embarrassed by his success and tries to hide his former life from all survivors he meets one of whom will eventually be Nick Andros, our fourth and final lead character on the side of good. Originally from Castle, Nebraska, we meet Nick as he's traveling through Shoyo, Arkansas. 22 years old, Nick is traveling from town to town, job to job. But with Nick, King takes a considerable risk by making him deaf as well as mute. My reading on this subject tells me that deaf people actually don't like to be called mute. But with Nick, it's actually a birth defect that took both his hearing and his ability to make any sounds. Not only can't he speak, he can't cry out in pain or make any vocal noise at all. But King doesn't tell us that right up front. When we're introduced to Nick, it's like any other character, but the author hints at it. Now, I do think King cheats a little bit, as the chapter is seemingly from Nick's point of view, but does discuss the sound of a nose breaking. But slowly, King leads us to realize Nick is deaf before it's said overtly. Still in short story mode, King gives us Nick's full backstory. How his mother died when Nick was only nine, and how another deaf-mute helped Nick learn to read, write, and most importantly, to lip-read. Now again, my research shows me the best lip-readers can usually only catch about a third of a conversation, whereas Nick seems to get every word perfectly, and that stereotype of super-lip-readers is something the hearing impaired don't necessarily like. But it's through this super-lip-reading skill that Nick is able to participate in conversations. Now as an adult, Nick is working to get his GED. He's smart and takes odd jobs to get by, but here in Shoyo, we meet him as he's being attacked, beaten, and robbed. King may idolize the American good old boy, but he's also not ever afraid to bring in the dark side of small town America, the violent drunk slag the ones after Nick. Of our four main characters, I actually feel Nick is the one least developed. Even more than Stu, Nick is another good guy. When people start dying, Nick is made Sheriff of Shoyo, a job he won't leave until virtually everyone in the town is dead. As the story progresses, I often felt that Nick and Stu were redundant characters, both just good guys. But that redundancy is really only driven home when the two characters finally meet, and that's well into Book 2 of The Stand. For all of Book 1, the two characters are mostly defined by their struggles, and fortunately, those are very different. But looking outside the plot, I see two main purposes for Nick in this story. First. As the stand goes on, it becomes quite clear this is going to be a biblical allegory. Not that any specific story from the Bible is taken and adapted to the stand, but the stand takes common biblical themes and motifs, primarily those from the Old Testament, and uses those story elements to tell a modern tale. And in that regard, Nick is our Job. Born not with one but two handicaps, Nick has the deck stacked against him from the start. He perseveres and becomes quite smart, but when we first meet Nick, he's being beaten and has his front teeth knocked out and that damage is never repaired as society falls before Nick can find a good dentist. In the extended edition, it's even worse as one of the bullies who beat up Nick returns and gouges out one of Nick's eyes. King doesn't draw attention to it much, but Nick becomes a patch-wearing, one-eyed, toothless, deaf-mute, and still he perseveres and becomes a leader in a new society. The punishment seemingly never ends for Nick. When left alone in the town of corpses, Nick scrapes his leg in a bicycle accident, In the unabridged version, he accidentally grazes his own leg with a bullet. But either way, he scrapes his leg and the infection nearly kills him. He survived the Great Plague, only to nearly be done in by a scrape. This helps demonstrate how dangerous it could be living in a world without the organizations upon which we've been taught to rely. No police, no doctors. But of all people, it happened to Nick. Hell, in the extended edition, there's even a scene where Nick is almost blown away by a tornado. The amount of abuse King heaps upon Nick is constant, and when looking at the Bible, I definitely saw a bit of the story of Job in Nick's trials. But there's one key difference between Job and Nick. The story of Job is there to demonstrate one man's faith in the Lord despite constant adversity. But Nick is revealed to be a strong atheist. He's a pragmatist, made such by his experiences and his book-smart attitudes. As the story goes on and capital G God becomes a factor, Nick is the disbeliever. This could really turn a reader against the character, especially a strongly religious reader. But because Nick is written as such a nice and noble guy, his arguments never come off as harsh or rude. He's a survivor who feels he's done it without God. He won't shame anyone for their beliefs, but he doesn't share them. Those two traits make Nick a little bit more interesting than Stu to me. And while he's not one of my two favorite characters in the book, he is in the top five. I enjoyed reading nearly every page in which he was featured during book one and the first half of book two. But while Nick deals with his abuse at the hands of drunk townies, Larry sleeps with dental assistants, and Fran fights with her mother, King never lets us forget about Captain Trips. For all of book one of The Stand, King tells many stories in parallel, and Stu's storyline is the one where this epidemic is most clearly felt. And this is why Stu has no struggles of his own, no short story to tell. Stu was there when Campion, patient zero, crashed into the gas pumps in Arnett, Texas, and Stu will be our point of view into the U.S. government's response and attempts to cure or contain Project Blue. Shortly after Campion's accident, Arnett is quarantined, and Stu and his friends at the gas station are rounded up and forced to go to a government facility in Atlanta. It's obvious that all of Stu's friends, plus their wives and children, are infected with the deadly disease. But, somehow, Stu isn't. It's probably no surprise to anyone reading this book, and especially not to anyone listening to this review, that Stu and the rest of our main characters are mysteriously immune to Captain Trips. King never explains why this is. There's no snake bite in their history, no childhood illness that gave them all immunity to Project Blue. There's no reason ever discovered at all. It doesn't even appear genetic, as Fran is immune, but she has to watch both her parents die from this horrible disease. Likewise, Larry tends to his mother as she dies, and dozens of minor characters suffer the same trauma. Outside of the context of the story, King said that some people had to be immune. There's no story to tell if everyone's dead. But inside the pages of The Stand, our characters are simply able to survive, but they must watch everyone around them die. We're told the disease has 99.4% communicability and a 100% mortality rate. The virus mutates as the human body tries to fight it off, and no one infected ever successfully fights off this flu. That makes it ominous. I said that with Campion, King put the storm clouds on the horizon. But with Stu's adventures, the severity of this illness is driven home. A single innocuous sneeze is brushed off by people on the page, but the reader knows a single cough means a death sentence for the character afflicted. Additionally, King has the disease catch to dogs and horses as well, taking away not only man, but some of man's most useful animals. Some of this we see through Stu's story as he becomes a lab rat, poked, prodded, and studied by scientists unable to figure out why everyone else is dying, but this lone Texan stays healthy. Scientists even intentionally infect Stu, but he never gets so much as a sniffle. And it's through Stu that we learn that indeed our main characters will survive. But Stu only witnesses this story from the confines of a cell. He's the character closest to the doctors working to cure the disease, or to find a vaccine. But these chapters are told from Stu's point of view, and he's ignorant to the chaos that's going on outside. He finally engages in some not-so-passive resistance, refusing to allow the nurses to do any more tests until someone in charge gives them some answers. Now, King certainly could have chosen to tell this entire story only through those four characters. It would have been equivalent to Steven Spielberg's 2005 remake of War of the Worlds to tell us only the story of those on the ground and what they experienced firsthand. That might have tied us closer to our characters, but it can certainly rob a story such as this of its grandeur and scope. And for the vast majority of The Stand, all three books of it, King keeps the prose character-driven. Never, in books 2 and 3, does King tell a chapter from the point of view of someone who's not a main character or a strong supporting character. But he does this in book 1 to convey the full impact of Captain Trips. In one regard, this could be seen as a bit of a cheat, that King utilizes a writing style in the beginning that he never brings back again. Yet, I wouldn't change a word of it, because when King is telling the beginnings of a national epidemic is when his writing is most gripping. After all, what King is writing may not be classical horror fiction, but to me it's scarier than any ghost story or any vampire tale. King is telling of the spread of a highly contagious, deadly virus, and that's all too real of a concept. After all, I'm recording this in 2014, and very recently, it seems the entire nation was in a frenzy over a possible outbreak of the Ebola virus. High communicability plus high mortality. It doesn't just seem like a possibility, but an inevitability. Be it bird flu, swine flu, Ebola, or some disease we don't even have a name for, be it man-made or naturally created. This all seems very, very plausible. Hell, even the normal flu viruses that are spread in America today are quite deadly. And I'm not talking about flu as used in the American vernacular. There is really no such thing as the stomach flu. And that mild case of the sniffles is not the flu either. The common flu, for which doctors constantly prescribe an annual vaccination, is a deadly disease. Just under 100 years ago, between 50 and 100 million people died of the Spanish flu spread by troops in World War I. Think about that. More people died from a flu spread by troops than actually died from combat in that war. These days, the media focuses on how flu viruses often can kill the very old and the very young, but it's really common for healthy men and women in their 20s and 30s to nearly die. Some actually die from the flu. Now, King just takes the common flu that we write off and presents it to us in that grotesque, vivid, and descriptive manner he has. He makes us fear this Captain Trips. He makes us repulsed by it. Then, he sets it loose. For one full chapter, King deviates from the character-driven narratives and writes from the perspective of an omniscient narrator. And through this, he shows us that the world ends not with a bang, but simply through sociability. In that chapter, he writes, quote, They communicated the sickness, which would soon be known across the disintegrating country as Captain Trips, to more than 25 people, including a matronly woman who just came in to pay her bill before going on to pass the disease to her entire bridge club. This matronly woman was Mrs. Robert Bradford, Sarah Bradford to the bridge club, cookie to her husband and close friends. Sarah played well that night, possibly because her partner was Angela Dupre, her best friend. They seemed to enjoy a happy kind of telepathy. They won all three rubbers resoundingly, making a grand slam during the last. For Sarah, the only fly in the ointment was that she seemed to be coming down with a slight cold. It wasn't fair arriving so soon on the heels of the last one. She and Angela went out for a quiet drink in a cocktail bar after the party broke up at ten. Angela was in no hurry to get home. It was David's turn to have the weekly poker game at their house, and she just wouldn't be able to sleep with all that noise going on. Unless she had a little self-prescribed sedative first, which, in her cases, would be two slow gin fizzes. Sarah had a ward date, and the two women rehashed the bridge game. In the meantime, they managed to infect everyone in the Poliston cocktail bar, including two young men drinking beer nearby. They were on their way to California, just as Larry Underwood and his friend Rudy Schwartz had once gone to seek their fortunes. A friend of theirs had promised them jobs with a moving company. The next day, they headed west, spreading the disease as they went. Chain letters don't work. It's a known fact. The million dollars or so you're promised if you'll just send one single letter to the name at the top of the list, add yours to the bottom, and send the letter on to five friends, never arrives. This one, the Captain Tripp's chain letter, worked very well. The pyramid was indeed being built, not from the bottom up, but from the tip down. Said tip being a deceased army security guard named Charles Campion. All the chickens were coming home to roost. Only instead of the mailman bringing each participant bale after bale of letters, each containing a single dollar bill, Captain Tripps brought bales of bedrooms with a body or two in each one, and trenches and dead pits, and finally bodies slung into the oceans on each coast, and into quarries and into the foundations of unfinished houses. And in the end, of course, the bodies would rot where they fell. Sarah Bradford and Angela Dupre walked back to their parked cars together, infecting four or five people they met on the street, then pegged cheeks and went their separate ways. Sarah went home to infect her husband and his five poker buddies, and their teenage daughter Samantha. Unknown to her parents, Samantha was terribly afraid she'd caught a dose of the clap from her boyfriend. As a matter of fact, she had. As a further matter of fact, she had nothing to worry about. Next to what her mother had given her, a good working dose of the clap was every bit as serious as a little eczema on the eyebrows. The next day, Samantha would go on to infect everybody in the swimming pool at the Poliston YWCA. And so on. End quote. The very first time I read that chapter, I thought it sounded almost biblical. Sarah infects Samantha, Samantha infects the YWCA, it reminds me of Genesis. And unto Enoch was born Arad, and Irad begat Mahuel, and Mehuel begat Methusel, and Methusel begat Lamech. It is a sort of Genesis, the Genesis of the plague, but what the Bible describes as an act of creation, and King is following a lineage of death. In addition to the omniscient narration. King also introduces us to General William Starkey, Billy to his friends. King never puts us in the office of the President of the United States. We never see the briefings or what he's ordering at a national level. That's not the type of author King was at this time, and it would kind of go against that American ethos, the story of the hardworking man. More, in the shadow of Watergate, the President might not have been a very heroic figure to introduce. As such, The highest up the chain of command King puts us is this 36-year army veteran who is the military head of Project Blue, and answers directly to the President himself. Through the General's conversations with his right-hand man, Major Len Crichton, we are made aware of the government response to the superflu, the cover-ups, the quarantines, the military actions, the subjugation of the press. We see it all from Starkey's point of view, and then, later on, through other insertions of omniscient narration. The chapters with the General never feel like a short story the way all the other chapters in Book 1 do. These feel very driven by the overall narrative. More, Starkey and Crichton are paper-thin characters when stood next to a Franny Goldsmith or a Larry Underwood. And that's because they're disposable characters King is using to illustrate a point, but they have little story of their own. In hindsight, I think I'd have liked to see the General or the Major also coincidentally be immune and have to live in the world their project destroyed. I'd have found it interesting to watch other characters react to meeting the architects of the world's end but narratively that may have introduced other issues. Military brass may be too plugged into the secrets of the government to allow the story King wants to tell. So King also cheats by giving us Starkey and Crichton, who, in the abridged version, are the only two point of view characters not to survive book one. But I'll say right now, this portion of The Stand is my favorite, and it's the reason I love this freaking book. As a reader, I often find myself most engaged in a story at its climax, When I'm finishing a book is when I stay up late, giving myself a good dose of eye strain, just because I can't put the book down. But in The Stand, that happens here, in the middle of book one. King's writing is beyond engaging. It's enveloping. The author teases us, giving us a glimpse of the death to come, but then teases us by making it linger, returning us to Larry taking in a movie in Times Square, or Nick telling the Sheriff of Shoyo how he learned to read. But even in those short stories, the disease comes. Larry hears a man coughing in the movie theater, and we, the reader know that man is dead. The men who attack Nick are put in prison, but start to get sick, as does the sheriff who put them there. Stu is moved to the plague center in Stovington, Vermont, and one nurse sneezes. We all know what this means. King's created the ivory soap of death with his 99.44% effectiveness. Now let's not forget that King is a child of the 1950s and a college student in the 1960s. He attended his share of campus demonstrations against the Vietnam War, and as such can grow into an adult with a strong anti-establishment ideal and an overall distrust of the government. This attitude is indulged in the stand, especially in the unabridged version. The government cover-up of the disease is inexcusable, politicians lying to the populace about the nature and severity of the deadly disease, reporters shot and killed in order to stem the flow of information to the people, radio DJs massacred while broadcasting the truth. In events likely inspired by some soldiers' abuse of power in the Vietnam War, King tells of some soldiers deployed domestically who also abused their power, causing massacres on live TV. The anti-government paranoia in these sections will certainly appeal to some segments of King's readership, while I found them to be a bit overstated. It's extended in the 1990 edition, and some of that becomes so redundant and hammered upon that I occasionally felt that this 60s paranoia had no place in a book published in 1990. Yet, it is still a gripping tale to watch a government try to force peace, to engage in war against a virus, while both the soldiers and the people are dying en masse. The only constraint King seems to put on these omniscient portions of the story is that we never leave the continental United States. At no point are we told of how the British or the French respond to Captain Tripps. We know the US government tries to hide their involvement from foreign powers, and they in fact deliberately infect other countries to mask the origin. And we read of a news report that claims there were outbreaks in Russia and Red China, but that's not the focus. It's barely mentioned and then completely ignored after. King has said in interviews he regrets not making the global impact more clear, down to the possibility of rival Randall flags popping up all over the world. But as I said before, This is an American story, and while I'm curious how it went down in Africa, it doesn't hurt this novel that is not here. That's the kind of thing I'd love to see come up in a sequel, if there were areas to which people didn't regularly travel, where tribes or villages have uninfected people. But that's not this story, and in the first half of book one of this story, King did some of the best writing of his entire career. He's depressed when people still say The Stand is their favorite book, but it's rare for any author to create circumstances as engaging and vivid as King does right here on the page. I think part of it is that King, the author, is having a great deal of fun writing it. In interviews, King said, quote, "...much of the compulsive, driven feeling I had while I worked on the stand came from the vicarious thrill of imagining an entire entrenched social order destroyed in one stroke. That's the Mad Bomber side of my character." End quote. That compulsion he felt while writing these passages seems equal to me in my own compulsion while reading it. King also said, quote, I love to brown things up, at least on paper, and I don't think arson would be half as much fun in real life as it is in fiction. I love fire. I love destruction. It's great. It's black. It's exciting. The stand was particularly fulfilling because there I got a chance to scrub the whole human race, and man was it fun. End quote. The fun King felt writing is passed on to the reader, I was realizing as I was reading this that yes, I was scared by a scenario that felt so real it could happen this year. But it was also fun just to witness the destruction of all of America. Now this section of the stand reminded me considerably of the part of Salem's Lot where the entire town is being turned into vampires. King is covering much of the same ground, but now it's on a national scale. The parallels are down to both novels even have a young mother who realizes that she should be sad over the death of her baby but really isn't. But with Salem's Lot, King's balance was off. He tried to make too many characters seem to matter and robbed the main characters of import. Here, we know many of these characters don't matter to the plot. We didn't see Sally before or after her bridge game. But that doesn't make her death any less scary, because what King is describing is that it's coming for us. I guess King never made me feel like I was a resident of Salem's Lot. I felt like I lived in King's world. And it's just such a great idea, and so well-written, that honestly, King could have taken just this idea and had an entire novel out of it. It worked for Earth Abides, and less than a decade earlier, Michael Crichton covered somewhat similar ground with the Andromeda Strain, admittedly with a more sci-fi bent. And recently, similar territory was visited in the movie Contagion, where a team of scientists must develop a vaccine against or a cure for a deadly virus. King could have written this story solely about the release of Project Blue and the scientists who work to cure it. More nihilistically, King could also have taken this story and just made it about a disease that can't be stopped, leaving only 0.6% of the population alive. But without the normal societal structures in place, this remaining 0.6% must struggle against the base nature of human beings, the lootings, the rape, and try to survive. But this is a Stephen King story, and a fight against a flu isn't enough. He tells stories of men fighting other men, or men fighting monsters. What's amazing to me is that King takes both those concepts that could stand alone with impunity, and that's just the setup to the story he wants to tell. By his own admission, King enjoyed writing the end of the world, but that was a means to an end and not the end itself. What King really wants to write is an epic tale of good versus evil. And by that, I mean big supernatural forces of good fighting big supernatural forces of evil. Captain Trips is merely setting the stage for this fight. In fact, the Captain Tripp storyline is really just one half of the first book of The Stand. By about the midway point, depending on the version you read, society has crumbled. Larry's mother is dead, and he's left among the remnants of Manhattan. Nick is the last survivor in Shoyo, fighting his leg wound. Fran is burying her father in his garden, in shock at the loss. And Stu is one of the last survivors in the Vermont Plague Center, lost in the labyrinthine structure, trying to find an escape. The white side of the chessboard is ready but King also needs to set up that other side of the board, including the demonic entity Randall Flagg and his lackeys. Of all the characters King has ever created, Flagg is the one who casts the longest shadow. This demonic entity has gone on to appear in more than half a dozen other King novels, and he's a fan favorite. So to give him the time he deserves, this is where I'm going to end part two of this six-part series. Come back to bookstodnachos.com tomorrow as I continue looking at the stand, including Randall Flagg and his Agents of Evil. And in the meantime... Bay yay yayby, you can tell me if anyone can. Baby, can you dig this podcast? It's a righteous podcast. Tell me, baby, can you dig your podcast? Well, if you do dig this podcast, I'd really appreciate a five-star written review on iTunes. That's the best way you can help spread the word about the show and bring new constant listeners into the fold. And I'll be back tomorrow with the part three of my stand review. In the meantime, please remember to get a flu shot.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our show by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also find dozens more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. The music for Books and Nachos is The Right Prescription by Chai Weapon, which can be downloaded at podsafeaudio.com. Books and Nachos is a Venganza Media Production, copyright 2015, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated.
1: Bumpty Bump Her shift dress Her shift dress hide What the fuck's a shift dress? Bumpty Bump Looky, 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 here comes Nookie. Looky, 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 here comes Nookie. Bumpty bump. I don't much care to read about Stu, and I like Flan. Flan? I like Flan. Bumpty bump. He just runs to New York to find safety in his mother and maybe in another girl to bed, but not his mother. Bumpty bump. I know I didn't say I was coming down. I know you didn't know I was here in town. But baby, you tell me if anyone can. Baby, can you dig your man? He's a righteous man. Tell me, baby, can you dig your man?